to begin today, I want to play a little bit of a game for you, uh, or with you, I guess you could say. Well, it's, it's more you playing it and me seeing how well you do. Uh, but essentially what I want to do is I've got a series of photos, and I'm going to show you a photo of something that is very close up on an object, and it's an everyday object or item, something that you would normally recognize. And I'm going to see if you can guess what this item is by looking at the the really close-up photo, okay? And so when we play this game, you can guess however you want. You want to shout it out, you can shout it out. If you want to whisper it to your neighbor, you can whisper it. If you want to keep it inside, however you want to do this, it's fine. Uh, but let's see if you can correctly guess these items. Photo number one. Any ideas on what this object might be? Any guesses? Any guesses? Sponge. I heard sponge. All right, the real item is chocolate. Anybody guess chocolate? Yeah, liars, I don't believe you, whatever. Uh, shout it out next time, just kidding. All right, photo number two. Any guesses here? What do you think? What do you think? Oh, I heard the right answer. Go to the uh, real picture. Cantaloupe. Who said it? Who said it over there? Yeah, okay, we had a few over there. Good job. All right, go to picture number three. Y'all are doing pretty good. Yes, good job. Dandelion, Callan, way to go. All right, photo number four. See, y'all are getting better and better. Yes, photo number four. All right, see, your coffee lovers out there, y'all figure that one out quickly. Okay, this one to me was the hardest one. Photo number five. Right? Yeah, that's not easy, is it? All right, the real photo is flame. All right, yeah, that one was difficult. That one was like, how is anybody going to figure that one out, right? Um, here's the point to this exercise, and the reason I want to play this game, fairly obvious. Uh, a lot of times it's difficult to see something uh, unless you zoom out and you get a, a bigger picture. A lot of times we can be really close up to something and it's harder to discern uh, what it is that we're seeing, what we're experiencing, and so you need to zoom out, step back, and get a greater sense of, of what the picture is. And this obviously serves as a metaphor for life. Uh, that a lot of times we can look at something in a very specific lens with a very limited view, but there's a greater picture that can be seen when you zoom out with different perspective. Uh, let me give you an example. We'll build upon uh, this, this opportunity of prayer that we had this morning in a ministry in Thailand. As I mentioned, Callan's going to Thailand with an organization called Campus Outreach. And it would be very easy for us to look at this opportunity and say, look at what's happening this summer in June of 2023 and what this organization is doing and all the different ministry art, uh, partnerships and opportunities that are going to exist over the next six weeks. But there's more to that story, isn't there? You can zoom out, and what you discover is that uh, there's a lot that's taken place in this country. You've got a country of 71 million people. Uh, it is estimated, according to Joshua Project, to have about 1% of that population uh, following Jesus Christ or being a believer. More than 88% are Buddhists. There's a phrase within Thailand that says to be Thai is to be Buddhist. And so you would sit there and think, well, this is a very noble task. Uh, there is a, there's a lot that still has to be done. And you would maybe miss all the things that have happened up to this point. That the fact that Callan gets to go or any organization is there is part of a much larger story, right? That you could actually go back to 19, I think, 78, if I'm not mistaken, and that story could even really say it got its beginnings with a few believers in Birmingham, Alabama, that had a strong conviction that a strategic point of emphasis would be to reach college students on, on college campuses. And they started that in Alabama, and then it began to grow to different states and different cities around the U.S. until eventually it became an international organization in 1990 with a campus presence in Thailand, right? That campus outreach 
is an organization that's been working in Thailand for 30 plus years. Uh, and this opportunity this summer didn't just happen uh, instantaneously. And you could zoom out even further than that, couldn't you? And realize that there's been a lot of work happening in Thailand long before campus outreach that you would have to go back probably as early as 1518, which is when the first Portuguese missionaries showed up in Thailand. And they were actually granted certain favor with the king and allowed to build a church. And for the first 100 years or so, 150 years or so, there was a little bit of a presence of Christianity there. But around 1688, that favor changed. And, and the new king and the, the other folks within the country began to respond to the presence of Christianity in a very hostile way. Uh, with persecution, they drove people out. And it wasn't until around 1780, about 100 years later, uh, that French missionaries finally returned. 1828, you had the first Protestant missionaries show up in Thailand. 1833, I believe, it was the first American Christian uh, missionaries. And, and a lot of these stats and dates are coming from YWAM's history of Thailand. And so I wasn't exactly sure where they made this next point, what the, what the starting point was. But they said that the work there in Thailand was so difficult. And I assume the beginning was related to the presence of American Christians uh, or missionaries. Was that for 18 years, 22 missionaries saw zero converts. 18 years, 22 missionaries, zero converts. Right, so the history of Christian work in Thailand, when you zoom out, is really extensive. It includes persecution, opposition, um, uh, being banished, it, it faithful laboring for year upon year upon year, and still seeing very little to no fruit. And there were ebbs and flows uh, to the response of the gospel, both before and after the Second World War, but it wasn't really until about 1970 uh, that you saw certain organizations like New Tribes and then eventually Campus Outreach find a foothold and be able to establish themselves so that we can see opportunities like the one we just prayed for. All right, so the point is, right, when you zoom out, you see a much larger picture, right, that makes greater sense of our current reality or maybe the most, uh, the closest view that you have. And you could do this to numerous institutions, organizations. You could do this with our own church, Right? It's not enough just to look at UBC through the lens of what's happening this year or even in the most recent years, that when you zoom out, it could take you all the way back to 1929 and a tent revival that spurred 20-plus uh, individuals to come and start a church to help reach this new, newly developing university at TCU and establish University Baptist Church. Right? You can do this not just with institutions, you can do this with our own individual lives. There's a lot of value in, in zooming out and seeing this different perspective. Here's the challenge, is that when you do this and you apply it to yourself or even to an institution, the limitation that you often encounter is that when you zoom out, you can typically only look backwards. And that still is somewhat limiting for us because what typically what we really want to get a greater sense of confidence, to get a greater sense of assurances, to get greater clarity and greater peace, is we don't really just want to look backwards. We want to look forward as well, don't we? Like I, I remember on a personal level, right, trying to apply this in a, in a much more personal way. Uh, when Jennifer and I were struggling to start a family, uh, that was so hard. And it, and it felt like life was just right here, up close and personal, where we couldn't make sense of what God was doing, how he was doing it, and all those different things. And if we tried in that moment to zoom out, all we were really going to be able to do was look backwards and see the different things that had happened to lead to that moment. But what we were really craving was to look forward, right, to anticipate the future, to figure out where is this headed. 
And I'll never forget when we finally uh, became pregnant, and in the sense of relief, the sense of joy, and the sense of clarity that I felt in that moment where I was just like, okay, it all makes sense now. I see what God was doing. And if somebody could have taken me to that moment when I was right in the middle of it, and none of it made sense, and it was difficult, and I was going through that pain and that anguish, if somebody had been able to say, but look at where it's going, what that would have done to give me that sense of clarity, of confidence, of peace, it would have been so different, right? And that's the power of zooming out. And that's one of the unique aspects to the gospel, is that when you really cling to the gospel, and you look at it in its fullness, in the full picture that it provides, yes, it allows you the chance to look backwards, but it also gives you a sense of where things are going. And, and when we get a, a full vision of that, we walk away with some very, very important truths. And here's the one that I want us to cling to this morning. Here, here's the truth that I think this passage will reveal and that I hope we can rest in. There is a plan, and it is not yours. And those two truths are incredibly powerful. So let's take a look at it, okay? Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. We're finishing off this section that Paul has been working extensively through for three chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 have all been designed to really kind of help answer the question, how does this gospel impact the nation of Israel, right? Which is a theme he introduced early in the letter, and now he's been working diligently through it. And, and what we're going to finally see today is kind of the culmination of that work. And, and what we'll discover as well is that it's not just the culmination of these three chapters, but it really even draws back to what Paul has been working on from the very beginning. And, and it's a really, really powerful uh, point of resolution that we're going to see this morning. Now, here's how we're going to work through it. Uh, it's, a, it's a larger chunk. We're going to finish chapter 11 today. So I'm going to work through it incrementally uh, a little bit at a time. And once we have a good understanding of what this uh, what this, this last section of this chapter means, then at the very end of the message, we'll, we'll seek to, to kind of narrow down the application of it, okay? Now, before we look again at verses 11 and 12, I want to kind of start where we left off last week. Um, last week, we talked about a very difficult part of chapter 11 where Paul has been trying to answer the question, uh, why do the Jews not believe? Uh, what is the reason for their unbelief? And he's going through a series of questions, and he, he's asking, is it because they didn't hear? Well, no, they had every opportunity to hear. Is it because they didn't understand? No, they had every opportunity to understand. Is it because God has forsaken them and forgotten them? No, he hasn't forsaken and forgotten them. So what is the reason? And at the end there, uh, what we looked at last week was that God had given Israel a, a spirit of stupor, right? He had darkened their eyes. Uh, he had blinded them, essentially. And that's a really difficult text to understand um, and to, to wrestle with why would God do that. And so we, we peeked ahead and we looked at verses 11 and 12 to get some clarity last week. So we'll, we'll start there again. Uh, chapter 11, verse 11 says, Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So we talked about this briefly last week, so that, that Paul is now trying to say, yes, they, they have been given the spirit of stupor, their eyes have been darkened, but they have not fallen beyond recovery. 
right? They have not fallen beyond God's grasp. Like that is not what has happened here. In fact, what God is doing is he is using their transgression to bring riches to the world. This is how the Gentiles are being brought in on this gospel story. By their transgression, good things are happening. And then Paul hints at the fact that if that's true, how much greater, how much greater will the riches be when their full inclusion occurs? And he hints towards this inclusion, this idea of a remnant, okay? And so, so with that being said, he now turns his attention to the Gentiles, picking back up in verse 13. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. For I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Let's stop right there. So, so now Paul is owning his identity as the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his reputation. Uh, that was the, the main focus of his ministry. But he's using this again to defend himself in a way that he has before. He has reiterated throughout this letter his love for his people, his love for the Jews. And so once again, he's saying, yes, I am the apostle to the Gentile. This is my ministry. I take pride in this ministry. But one of the reasons I take pride in it is because I don't see this as a ministry that is just exclusively focused on the Gentiles. That my hope is that by seeing the movement of God in the Gentiles, I will stir my own people towards envy and jealousy so that they may also then respond to the gospel. So Paul's trying to make an argument. I'm thinking about my people. I still am burdened for my people. My hope is that through this ministry, Jews can be stirred in such a way that they too will come to understand this gospel. Right? So he, he sees his ministry, his identity is being focused, yes, on the Gentiles, but still to the benefit of the Jews. Now, as he's talking about this, he offers a very important word of clarity. He answers his question there in verse 12 about how much greater will the riches be with their full inclusion, right? So what he says is that if their rejection is bringing reconciliation to the world, then their acceptance be, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. Now, I love this, and I want to make sure we don't, we don't miss this or we, we run past it too quickly. Because essentially what he is saying is that right now, in, in this point in time, in this point in history, their rejection of the gospel, their transgression is creating riches for the world, reconciliation for the Gentiles. So we are in this era of this gospel being preached so that reconciliation can be extended to the Gentiles. Right? That's that's what we're experiencing. But what will happen when they finally bring about their acceptance? What will those greater riches be with their full inclusion? And he answers it here. The greater riches is life from the dead. Now, I want to make sure we, we understand that and cling to that because what he has just done is reminded each and every one of us what the essence of the gospel is. It is resurrection of the body and full redemption of the world. That's what we're waiting for. There is no greater riches to which the human heart should long for. Nothing greater that our hopes should be anchored in but a resurrection of the body in full redemption of the world. This is the gospel, life from death. 
And so the point that I want us to cling to this morning is to remember that Jesus came to do so much more than just forgive us of our sins so that we can live these nice little tidy Christian lives as good little Christian boys, good little Christian girls focused on morality, that what he has done is to come and give us hope that there will be a day when the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable and all things will be made new. The essence of the gospel is life from death. Amen? That's what our hope is. That's what their inclusion brings. The fullness of that day when we get to experience the glory of the resurrection for all of its beauty. That's what we hope for. And so he references how we anticipate this. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So he gives us two different images to make kind of two slightly different points. The first is the image of first fruits and dough. And what he's referring to here would be the, the, the early church, more or less, like the, the first Gentiles and the first Jewish believers. Uh, and he's essentially saying, listen, if, if the first fruits of this dough, if they're holy, um, it's only going to expand. The whole batch will be holy. That, that essentially, there is a movement that God is going to continue. Those who currently believe this gospel message, this gospel response is not going to stop with them. It is going to work its way through the whole batch of dough. That what we're going to see is a gospel that moves beyond just Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but ultimately into the ends of the earth. It's going to penetrate Rome and Corinth and Thailand and Europe and Africa and the New World. Like it is going to continue to expand. And you and I are evidence of that fact. Right? The first fruits of this small little gospel movement has continued to work its way through the whole dough. Now, in addition to that, he points us to the branches. And he says, if the root is holy, so is the branches. And so now he's, he's bringing in a different image, and the root that's being referred to here would now be known as ancient Israel, and the, the original promises, the original covenant. And that prompts him into a, a more controlling and focused image that he's going to use to make the rest of his point. Let's, let's continue further. He says, if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing, nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. For if you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root support you, supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Okay, uh, I love this imagery. And, and what Paul is drawing from here is the ancient practice of grafting. Now, I'll confess to you, I really didn't have any understanding of what grafting was before studying it this week. Now, I had an idea, right? It, it's somewhat intuitive. Like, you can kind of go, yeah, okay, I see what happens here. But I hadn't really, like, looked at it in depth. And so maybe there's some other arborists and horticulturalists out there that are like, yeah, this is great, and I'm not telling you anything new. But for me, this was really enlightening. So I was on Britannica.com and researching a little bit more about it, found this really cool video. So essentially, the process of grafting has been around thousands of years, which is why Paul is referring to it here. It was a common practice that they would have known even then. And so what you could do is, let's say you were taking <clears throat> a tree. The example I found online was 
referring to an orange tree. And let's say this orange tree was producing uh, sour oranges. And you could take this, this younger tree that was producing sour oranges, and you could break off a branch, and you can cut a little slit in it. That's called the root stalk. And then you can go get just like the littlest piece uh, of a branch from another tree, orange tree, that's maybe producing sweet oranges. And you can take this little piece, I think it's called the scion, S-C-I-O-N, if that's the way you pronounce it, um, and you can insert it into that slit, tape it up, and over time, that branch literally becomes grafted into the tree and begins to blossom and grow as its own branch as a part of that tree. Uh, that is pretty remarkable. Like, I mean, just in and of itself, the fact that that can happen is, is really remarkable, and it makes me marvel at creation. But what I thought was equally interesting as I was studying this is that obviously there, there are these mutual benefits that in, in many ways the new branch that's been grafted in is benefiting from the root system and the strength of the rootstock that they've just been grafted into. But that one of the reasons farmers can do this is because now this new tree with sweet fruit has been introduced to the one with sour fruit. The properties of that branch can now overtake the tree and help it generate sweet oranges as opposed to sour oranges, which again is just mind-blowing to me. So maybe that was common knowledge for everyone else, and I'm on my own in this, but I thought that was really remarkable. So essentially, what Paul is saying is that uh, the root is ancient Israel, the covenant, the promises, the hope of the promised land, the hope uh, of God being king, all those things that we see. Uh, what has happened is that God has not looked at Israel and chopped down a tree and planted a new one. That is not what has happened. This is the same story, the same promises, the same God, the same covenant. But at this point in time that Paul is writing, the nation of Israel is producing a fruit that is not what God wanted or intended. And so those branches are being broken off. And the fruit of the gospel is being generated amongst the Gentiles so much so that he has now taken them, he has grafted them into the same tree so that they are now recipients of this promise, recipients of this covenant. And because they are responding to the gospel, they are bringing with it the fruit that God desires for this tree, the fruit of all nations coming to know and proclaim God as king, that that's what's taking place here. Now, that's the image. But notice why Paul is calling their attention to it. He's using it as a word of warning to the Gentiles. What he says is, is he says, so you who've been grafted in, do not think that you are superior to the other branches. Right? Don't think that, that you are greater than they are. And you may sit there and say, well, yeah, but they were broken off and God grafted us in. Doesn't that make us superior? And he goes, granted, they have, but you should not approach God with that arrogance. You are here by faith. Right? You should approach God with trembling. And so here's the point. What he's saying is that if you come in and you have this sense of superiority, this sense of arrogance, you're making the exact same mistake as Israel. That Israel had arrived at a certain point where they saw their claim, their participation in God's saving work, their identity as his people as being a right because of their heritage, because of their history, because of their ritual purity, whatever it was. And they saw themselves as superior. And it was that sense of superiority that led them down a path towards pride, that led them down a path where they no longer depended upon God. And God said, that is not how this works. This is only by faith. And he broke them off and removed them. And so if you're grafted in and you follow that same spirit 
of pride and of arrogance and superiority, then you are no longer living by faith. You are no longer resting in the grace and the mercy of God, but you are living with a certain pride, and it too will result in you being broken off. And so he uses it as a word of caution. And with that word of caution being established, notice then how he offers a clarity following that image of the tree and the branches. He says, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So this to me is an important word for us this morning. And one that I think will be um, meaningful and appropriate for us to, to grasp the application that will come later. We have to go through life with a clear view of both the kindness of God and the sternness of God. And I think it is uh, human nature, and I think it is definitely the way of our culture today to really just want to rest in the kindness of God. Right? Or, or maybe the better way to say it is that we are all about finding the kindness of God for ourselves and the sternness of God for everyone else. And, and, and we presume upon God's kindness to an extent that it, it begins to lead us down a path of feeling superior or that we have a right or a claim to God's grace, that we have a right and a claim to a certain um, privilege or opportunity or whatever it is. And we see this across all sides of the aisle, liberal, conservative, political, religious, you name the arena, we see it, right? Where people are gonna project themselves as being the benefactors of, of God's grace, of his mercy, so we're gonna live a certain way, we're gonna have certain values, we're gonna have certain morals, and anybody else that doesn't agree with these, well, then you're gonna fall under the sternness of God or a certain licentiousness or liberty that says, well, I just get to do whatever I want. I get to be whatever I want. I get to act however I want. I can live my life however I want because the kindness of God, the love of God, it just allows me to do all this stuff. And we forget that anybody that doesn't agree with us, or we don't forget, but then we assume that anybody that doesn't agree with that likeness, well, they're the ones that are going to be the recipients of the sternness of God. And so across our society, we have people claiming the kindness of God for themselves and projecting the sternness of God for everyone else. And what Paul says is you need to have a mind towards both. And your approach to this gospel and God's plan is one of humility. It is one of a certain perspective and understanding that allows you to see that it is only by faith, it is only by grace, where you get to be one who gets to continue in that kindness. Otherwise, God absolutely does respond with sternness. Let's not forget that. That is a part of the gospel. It's a part of his truth. And so now with that established, he begins to give us greater clarity of what this means for Israel. And now Paul is not just zooming out to give us a little bit more of a picture that allows us to look back, but he starts to look forward even more so. Right? He picks back up there in verse 23. If they don't persist in unbelief, they being the Jews, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So his point is, is listen, if, if you're, you Gentiles are from this wild olive tree and God took you and he grafted you in to this incredible story of salvation and, and, and this plan of his people. If he did that for you, 
He can absolutely take his people and graft them in again. And Paul admits this is not about nature. This is about the power of God. He can take these natural branches and bring them back. And so with that imagery established, Paul now finally reaches that climactic moment where he tells us, this is what the gospel means for Israel. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. There it is again. Don't, don't think of yourself as being superior. Don't be arrogant. Do not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The reason God has given them the spirit of stupor, the reason he has allowed them to transgress in their ways, to reject this gospel, is so that the rest of the Gentiles may come in. That's what you're seeing right now. The hardening of their hearts is to the benefit of the Gentiles. But when the full number comes in, what will happen, church? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's getting them to look forward. Now, when he says all Israel, I, I personally don't think that means every living Jew, right? But I do think it means the nation as a whole, the nation of Israel will be restored and redeemed. So Paul is done with the hints. He's done with the suggestions, the rhetorical questions. How much greater will their full inclusion bring? Can he graft these branches in? He now says it plainly. When the full number of the Gentiles come in, all Israel will be saved. He's pointing forward. And you can imagine how, what intrigue, what interest that would stir in the hearts of his readers, the same that it should in ours, where we would stop and go, when, how, how is this going to take place? When will we know? And that's what he seeks to answer with the following verses. He quotes two different passages or several different points of Isaiah. He says, The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, <clears throat> when he's quoting these verses, I, I personally think there's a couple of ways that you can interpret this. I do think uh, there is a way to interpret this to say that there will be a movement among um, the Israelites among the Jews at some point, right? That God will pour out his spirit. There will be awakening among his people. He will remove their godlessness. He will cleanse them of their sins. And we will see that at some point in the future. That is, I think, an interpretation. Where I lean and, and, and where I would uh, kind of suggest us to consider a little bit more seriously this morning was one that I came across in my studies this week, which is gonna point to something a little bit more profound and specific. Uh, and it really is, is contingent upon that first verse when the deliverer comes from Zion. So when you see a reference to the deliverer, <clears throat> you know this is a reference to the Messiah, to a Savior, the one who is going to deliver God's people. And because of when Paul is writing this and referencing this particular verse and all that he has said about Jesus up to this point in the letter and other letters, we know that Paul um, unashamedly believes that Jesus is Messiah and deliverer. Right, so he's talking about Jesus, when the deliverer, when he comes from Zion. Well, at this point, when Paul is writing, Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And, and there was an understood belief of Jesus' return. And Zion represents, in many ways, the, the dwelling place of God, the heavenly Zion. So in many ways, it, it's a reasonable interpretation that what Paul is referencing here is when Jesus returns from heavenly Zion and he's speaking of the return of Christ. Now, 
I, I can't say definitively if that's how it's going to happen, but I think it's worthy of our consideration because I think we can all imagine that when the full number of Gentiles is brought in and Jesus returns in that moment, God's people, the people of Israel, are going to see Jesus for who he is. They're going to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the resurrected, delivering king. And when that moment happens, how is God going to respond? He's going to remove the godlessness from Jacob. Right, so Jacob, right, wrestles with an, with an angel and his name is changed to Israel. And it's the 12 tribes of Israel. So even the name Jacob, right, is kind of indicative of that pre-transformation. So God's going to remove that godlessness and he's going to wipe away their sins. And in that moment, church, imagine the return of our Savior when we are on the cusp of that moment where we get to receive life from death, resurrected bodies for redemption of the world in the Gentiles and all of God's people, the nation of Israel, come once again to declare the glory of our God. What a day it will be. That's the future, right? And that's the picture that Paul wants us to hold on to. So he continues, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Okay, so, so now he's giving you a chance. Here's the whole picture. Here's how you understand your current reality. He's using the word gospel to give an explanation to what Jesus has just introduced, right? The resurrected Christ has shown us how God has brought this promise, how it's bringing reconciliation to the Gentiles, how all these things are happening. This is the gospel. And so during this current season, right now, the Jews are seen as enemies to that message. They have rejected it. They have rebelled against it. They do not believe it. But Paul is reminding them their rejection, their view as enemies is still for your sake. Right? God's allowing their disobedience to happen so that the, so that the Gentiles can, can respond and reconciliation can be brought to the world. So in terms of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But zoom out. Consider the bigger picture of election and what does God say? As for election is concerned, they are loved. I love that. They are loved on account of the patriarchs, pointing back to the root, pointing back to the old covenant, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. I don't, I don't know that the word irrevocable is, is focused so much on the character of God as much as it is just the plan of salvation for human history. That what God set out to do from the very beginning, his covenant, his promises to redeem and restore his people, to bring creation back unto himself, it will not change. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone for all people. And so what you have now is Paul has been working through this, not just for the last three chapters, but for the last 11 chapters, is this in-depth explanation of how this salvation is worked, that right alongside it, you, you see this opportunity for the gospel, and you see this opportunity for election. You see judgment, you see election. You see grace and mercy. You, you see sternness and kindness. You see this duality. You have disobedience and you have mercy. And those are the two words that he uses to bring this to some final form of understanding and, and clarity. He says, for just as you who were one time disobedient, you Gentiles who were one time disobedient to God, you've now received mercy as a result of Israel's disobedience. Well, at the same time, 
they too now have become disobedient in order that they may too receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you, right? He's just making the same point. Their disobedience is leading to your mercy, but your mercy is gonna lead to the mercy that they receive as well. And verse 32 provides this incredibly powerful summation of all that he has said. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So, so take this back to everything we've talked about up to this point, right? Like go back all the way to chapter one. What is the issue? It is an issue of disobedience. Like that's the problem with the human heart. Chapter one, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. And he begins to explain why this godlessness and this wickedness is being revealed against mankind because ultimately we have disobeyed. We have turned our backs on God. It is a complete refusal to acknowledge God as our creator. We don't acknowledge him as God, nor did we give thanks to him, nor did we glorify him. What did it say in chapter one? We have exchanged the glory of an immortal God for created things. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's the heart of disobedience. And what God has done, right, when we choose to go our own way and say, I don't need God in my life, I'm gonna go my own direction, I'm gonna go my own path, he essentially gives us over to that heart of disobedience. And what verse 32 is saying is that then we are bound up, we are imprisoned by disobedience. And what I think we can all learn from in our own lives, what we've seen through story after story, through human history, and what we see in God's word is that when we choose to turn our backs on God and he says, all right, you wanna live life without me? Go ahead. The purpose we hope to find, the meaning we hope to find, the love we hope to find, it all comes up empty without him. And we may think we have it. We may think we understand what life is. We may have a picture of what life is, but it is distorted. It is not clear. It is misguided. And so it just prompts more and more disobedience. And the reason that happens across all of humanity is that God confines us and binds us up to that disobedience. Why? So he can give us mercy. So that in that rebellion, in that disobedience, there's not a single heart that can say, I can make my own way. I can find my own way out. The only response is a cry for mercy. And when we find our heart in that disposition and in that posture, what do we rediscover? We have a creator and we have to fully rely upon him. And so with this elaborate explanation, Paul can't do anything but help and bring praise to God. It's a doxology that is not intended to give us greater clarity or greater understanding. It is simply a moment to be in awe of our creator. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is our creator. So I, I want to close by trying to make some level of application. Um, here's my question. How much of your life do you try to control? Like if you're really honest about it. 
how much of your life do you try to plan and orchestrate? Like how, how tightly do you hold to your understanding of life and your meaning and your significance? Um, I, I want to I try to give us the proper perspective this morning of what our life really looks like to the best of my ability. And so I want to say this as lovingly as I possibly can, uh, but, but with a level of honesty. You will be forgotten. Not by God, but pretty much everyone else. And that's not exactly the most uplifting way to draw a message to a close, but let me try to illustrate the point. Uh, raise your hand if you remember your grandparents' names, all of your grandparents' names. Raise your hand. Keep your hand raised if you remember all of your great-grandparents' names. Keep your hands raised if you remember all your great-great-grandparents' names. That's what I thought. Yeah. Woo, good job, buddy. So aside from the genealogists, right, and the folks that, that maybe have looked through their family tree, um, you've got maybe two or three generations. And your name by the people that are there to love you the most will not remember you. So all the energy you're putting into um, your career, uh, accumulating prosperity, wealth, significance, your family, all the things you're building, it's going to be forgotten. Your life is a mist. And that can be really terrifying, and that's good. Because in that terrifying reality, it creates a sense of humility that allows us to come before the Lord with trembling. And it helps us get the perspective we need to understand what our life is really about. So let me try to give you a positive spin on this for a moment, okay? Um, so I've, I've got favorite things in creation that just, you know, take your breath away. I mean, I think we all have them, whether it's like mountain ranges or sunsets, things like that. Uh, one of the things that I love are trees. Um, I've always loved trees. Uh, have you ever looked at the, the detail of a leaf? I've got a picture of a leaf in my backyard. And, and I love uh, getting an up-close look at, at a leaf. And you can see it there, the, the intricate design. You can see the veins that allow it to like flourish and thrive and, and have life and all those different things, right? And yet it's incredibly fragile and, and very, very thin. And, and yet at the same time, it's unique. There's not another leaf like it. You, there's a lot of leaves around it that may have a similar appearance, but there, no two leaves are the same. And that, to me, is indicative of life, right? Like, your life is beautiful. It's meaningful. It's valuable, right? It's, it's intricately and, and beautifully designed, and there is no one else like you, right? And yet your life is fragile, um, it's it's, it's um, really only going to find its strength and its vitality by staying connected to something bigger than yourself. If a leaf tries to detach itself from a branch or from the tree, what happens? It dies. In the same way, when we try to go our own way and find our own sense of self-worth, our own sense of self-significance, it dies. We have to zoom out. 
So one of the other things I love to do is we have this trampoline in our backyard, and uh, we'll, we, it's got this great tree cover over the trampoline. And so I'll go out there and I'll jump on the trampoline with my kids. And after I get tired, which is usually around two to three minutes because I'm 41, um, I'll lay down on the trampoline and I'll get my kids to lay down and, and I'll say, just look up at the trees. And I got these pictures of these branches of that view. And that's one of my favorite things to do is just look at the branches. Because now you can see that, that one little leaf is part of something bigger. There's like this web of branches and all these different leaves. And there's this kind of beautiful um, artistry that's taken place that have brought them all together with this mixture of, of sameness and similarity, but also distinctiveness. And yet you can still see that the branches, though sturdier and stronger than the leaf, they too are still fragile, right? That a storm can come and can break them and, and it can lead it astray or somebody, external for, force can come and break it and move it. And so those branches still need something stronger and greater. So you can zoom out even further and you discover it's not just branches, it's a whole tree. And this tree is this incredible depiction of strength, right? It's, it's somehow harnessed this mosaic of fragility and individuality and somehow depicted commonality and, and beauty and strength. A tree is strong and yet even still, when you marvel at the strength of the tree, you could zoom out even further if we were somehow allowed to and see that the source of that tree's strength is a root system that goes deep beneath the surface. And that root system allows that tree to stand against any winds, any rain, any storm that can come its way. It is sturdy. That's the gospel. Your life needs to be attached and tethered to something so much greater. And what Paul has just done for us has allowed us to zoom out and see the whole picture, that your life is connected to something so much bigger than yourself, and that what you see in this gospel, the promise that gives you strength, gives your life meaning and significance and worth and value is nothing you do for yourself but an ancient promise from the very beginning of time, a covenant that has not withered, that has not grown faint, that will not go away, a covenant and a promise of life from the dead. It is a promise that tells us that everything was made from him, through him, and for him, that he is your creator and you should approach him with that fearful and honorable humility, knowing that when you see all that he has done, you will get that sense of clarity, confidence, and peace that your soul so desperately longs for. And that's when you discover an incredible truth that I pray gives you courage. There is a plan, and it is not your own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. God, we thank you for what you are doing and God, we long for the day to see what you're going to do. We thank you for the way that you have orchestrated such an incredible work of artistry that allows us to come to you with the appropriate posture of humility and reverence to remind ourselves that our life is but a mist. And yet, God, in your sovereignty and in your goodness, you have sought to bring us into this plan through a measure of redemption and grace and mercy that we do not deserve, and we now get to be a part of painting this picture of glory. 
God, help us to return to you with that humility and that posture of reverence, God, that helps us to see over and over and over again what you have done and what you're doing, to see the fights that you're fighting, the battle that you have already won, that you have secured a victory over death. And that is the anchor of our souls. God, may we give you praise and glory for knowing that you've set us free from trying to solve it all on our own, but given us a hope to rest in your promises, to know your truth. May we worship your incredible plan and be grateful that it is not our own, but of our creator. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.